Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. In this episode, a recording from the 2014 Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference, which was held at NUI Maynooth. The conference, now in its fourth year, was generously supported by the UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research, Marsh's Library, Graduate Studies at NUI Maynooth, and the Department of History at NUI Maynooth. This podcast features a paper by Professor Raymond Pierre Hilton of Virginia Union University and Dr. Marie Liotte of the National Library of Ireland. Their paper was entitled Exile to Integration, Dublin as a Paradigm for the Huguenots' Experience in Ireland. Of all the non-Anglophone immigrant groups who took root in Dublin during the early modern period, and in Ireland as a whole for that matter, the Huguenots were the largest and uh, yet in all probability the most mythologized and misperceived. Uh, It is therefore incumbent that any discussion on the subject must confront the basic but nagging problems of identity and identification. How the Huguenots in exile saw themselves, how they in turn were viewed by contemporaries. Uh, In this instance, well might the question be asked, quote, how can a scholar best define the phenomena of Huguenot immigration slash colonization slash expatriation slash settlement slash immigration or whatever label might most appropriately describe the significant demographic influx? Now, there have decidedly been no lack of descriptive nouns. However, in ferreting out the proximate definition, in winning through the shades of meaning, might it be possible to more accurately decipher the elusive Huguenot identity? But no. As in all conundrums involving the Huguenots, it is never that simple. From 1660 to circa 1720, several thousand Huguenots traveled to and settled in Ireland for greater or lesser periods of time. They established population clusters around uh, an eastwardly oriented arc running from Cork to Belfast. By far the largest and most significant of these French Protestant concentrations was in Dublin with uh, about half of the total number of individuals. But what the Huguenots exactly did establish in Dublin cannot be neatly categorized nor can it simply be encompassed under conventional terminology. Enclave, colony, settlement, community, diaspora, refuge. On reflection, all such terms individually fall short of capturing the essence, let alone the totality, of the Huguenot presence. The problem is that in order to understand the Irish Huguenots, one must examine the concentration in Dublin as being paradigmatic and incorporative of elements of every significant Huguenot cluster in Ireland. Central to the story of the Huguenots are the corrosive forces of integration and assimilation. And the question that was posed informally during the Dublin Tercentenary Conference on the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1985, and I believe it was Rick Caldicott who posed that question, Quote, when did a Huguenot cease to be a Huguenot, unquote, remains unanswered. This paper will attempt to shed a certain degree of light as to the possible stages in the assimilatory process and the transformation that might have occurred. First, it was examined the Huguenot population in its three major waves of arrival and measure the impact of interreligious dissonance. Secondly, it was uh, examined uh, the experiences of a few paradigmatic families and degrees of endogamy, exogamy. And thirdly, it will assess the uh, role of the Earl of Galway in its context before drawing a few conclusions. It was, 
1662 that the first sustained attempt at introducing a sizable French Calvinist presence in Dublin was carried forward as a part of the first Duke of Ormond's grand schemes for modernizing Ireland, and it was bolstered by Irish parliamentary statute. Though a handful of population clusters briefly materialized and certain institutions were established, notably the French church congregation at St. Patrick that assembled the Lady Chapel of St. Patrick's Cathedral and was organized uh, in conformity to the Anglican Communion, the entire enterprise nonetheless foundered after the Duke's fall from grace in 1669. This early Ormondite influx was predominantly mercantile, originating mainly in the French provinces north of the Loire Valley, and was more of an immigration of choice, not a true refugee situation. Second wave, the late Ormondite was ignited by the billeting of heavy cavalry or dragoons in Protestant houses in 1681 in Poitou on the initiative of the Intendant of the region, Corné de Marillac. Uh, the influx of French Calvinists fleeing those dragonades and the uh, persecutory campaign against Protestants that followed, culminating in the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1685, was by contrast an immigration of necessity, a genuine refuge. Socially and geographically, it was also far more diverse than the First Ormondite group. Non-mercantile Huguenots domiciled south of the Loire Valley were in the majority. The second surge, however, was disoriented by the events of the Glorious Revolution of 1688 and the War of the Two Kings that ensued. Now, the third and by far the largest and most sustained influence was the Ruvignac, or the Galway Group, which began to stream forward in the wake of the Jacobite defeat in 1691 and continued steadily, sporadically for a certain time for roughly 30 years. The Ruvignac influence, influx was by far the most diverse of the three, though Languedocians and Oni saint onjois appeared to have predominated. A significant number of these Huguenots had a military background. Though some degree of integration born of situational necessity gained acquiescence fairly early on, uh, in many ways assimilation was by definition indicative of the acceptance of permanence of exile the preclusion of the possibility of a return to France. This eventuality, very few Huguenots would have been ready to concede prior to 1697, and it can be argued before 1613-14. The dreams of a return to a cleansed and repentant motherland and being reunited with loved ones and life memory were far too seductive to easily relinquish. It was, in fact, viewed by some as tantamount to accepting defeat. In this respect, as long as the hope to return was alive, the communities of Huguenots in Dublin were more likely to remain an enclave or to integrate rather than assimilate. It was mainly about religion in the first instance, and therefore not surprising in the least that the nature of one's faith played a crucial role in determining attitudes in exile. Indications of a reluctance to re accept Irish residents as permanent might be found in the adherence of a larger proportion of Huguenots in Dublin to nonconformity. This played out in spite of the inducements and obvious advantages of confirming, conforming to Anglicanism and in the face of a determined but failed attempt by the Earl of Galway to negotiate a unity of the French churches in Dublin under the Anglican Communion in April of 1693. Galway entrusted three ministers, including the conformist pastor Jean Severin, with drafting proposals of union between the French Reformed Church in Bride Street and the Conformed Church Congregation of French St. Patrick's. 
It's also significant that Galway argued with nonconformist Pastor Jacques Fontaine on the matter in 1698, and on this occasion also failed to impose conformity. This is not simply nostalgia. That factor alone would not adequately explain the tenacity of nonconformist belief. Suivant la discipline et la forme ancienne et ordinaire de nos églises en France, unquote, is a refrain that echoes too emphatically and with too devastating a persistence in the French church registered to be shrugged off as likely as certain past chroniclers have done. Though it may be oversimplistic to state categorically that conformity was in every single case indicative of greater willingness to accommodate and assimilate uh, than a less advantageous adherence to nonconformity, the tendency of the one to accept at least the, the possibility of a permanent exile and the other to cling to the expectation of a vindicatory re return to France is a logically inescapable corollary. But in May 1716, the successful initiative on the part of Galway to unite the churches suggests that the situation had changed enough in 23 years for the Huguenots to drift towards assimilation. Serving his second term as Lord Justice of Ireland, Galway was able to reconcile the schismatic French Church of St. Mary's with the St. Patrick's Conformed Church, reversing the early vociferous tendencies that had spawned four separate Huguenot congregations. The register saw that by 1740, Huguenot churches were experiencing a decline, and as a shift towards Anglicanism gained momentum, a higher degree of assimilation followed. But apart from adherence to conformity and worship at uh, Anglophonic Protestant churches, what further footprints would be looked for in order to ascertain assimilatory tendencies? Now, there are some fairly clear-cut individualized instances. The Onge family. Uh, immediately divested himself of its Huguenot identity upon coming here. Abel Onge Chandler arrived in Dublin in 1690, never attended French worship, and apparently plunged himself and his family straight into the Anglican Protestant ambiance. Similar, what are we to make of the Huguenot families who worship and freely mingled with congregations at Anglophone Church, like St. Nicholas Without the Walls, St. John, St. Mitchens on Northside, St. Andrews on Wicklow Street, St. Anne's on Dawson Street, St. Werberg's and St. Bride's, which are both near Christchurch. But this with exception, in most cases, assimilation occurred by degree over a protracted time period. Some distinguishing sign include, but are not limited to two, marriages to non-Huguenots, social and commercial associations with Anglophones, Anglicization of surnames, including some on grave markers, and the abandonment of French as an everyday language. It is in the area of exogamous marriages that factoring of assimilatory process is earliest and perhaps most in evidence. During the years 1692 to 1700, there's evidence for 21 exogamous marriages. 1701 to 9, the number jumps to 44, then eases to 30 for the years 1710 to 1719. And for the entire period, 1692 to 1817, the total reaches 315, though one strongly suspects a greater number of this given the gaps in both the conformist and nonconformist church registers. Anglicization of surnames signals some measure of identity erosion. For example, Pierre Lebrun's family were styling themselves as Brown by 1773. Jacques Leroy's family had affected the transformation to King before 1779. Certain Leblancs had become white by 1787, and the Barres had transferred themselves to Barry by 1807. 
But interestingly, there are earliest examples. Georges Tissier had changed his name to Stacy by 1714, and Pierre Leclerc to Clark by 1719. Huguenots were investing very heavily in the Dublin property market and entrepreneurial ventures before, after 1708. Many were putting down roots, and it certainly integrated into the capital's greatest society. Between the years 1708 and 1738, we note no fewer than 951 property transactions involving Huguenots, and roughly the same time, at least 80 businesses owned and operated by Huguenots. And now approaching the very critical year of 1697, what does one make of a situation where the most powerful official in Ireland was for a while the man who had been the Deputy General of the French Calvinist churches in France. And that man was Henri Massu, Marquis de Ruvigny, ultimately the Earl of Galway. Until recently, when Marie bought him out, a very unsung individual. Well, but to talk about the crucial year and to talk about the man, let me pass it on to my colleague, uh, Dr. Marie Léaud. Henry de Ruvigny's story is one of perfect assimilation into the Protestant hegemony of Ireland. He left France shortly after the revocation, choosing to conform to Anglicanism and leading a discreet life in England, helping fellow countrymen until 1690. He obtained naturalization in 1691 and became commander-in-chief of the army in Ireland and Irish Privy Councillor in 1692. He was granted Irish lands in custody in early 1693 while 600 French families of refugees were expected to arrive in Ireland in the spring, and he was elevated to the peerage that same year. The Irish land grants were made permanent in 1696. Now, Ruvini reached the top of the administration in Dublin Castle when he was made a Lord's Justice of Ireland in January 1697. As Earl of Galway and was de facto governor, his influence is attested by the part he played in shaping Williamite Ireland. Now, the year 1697 signals a watershed in the history of the Huguenots in Ireland. When many had been willing to integrate, and again, I, I can't stress that enough, as opposed to assimilate into their host society until then, European events changed the deal. Uh, in 1688, war broke out, and many of the Protestant exiles who had fled France since 1685 joined the ranks of the army of William of Orange. They followed him to England, Ireland, and back on the continent to fight against their former master. The War of the Grand Alliance ended, as you know, in 1697 at Ryswick. Now, what does it mean for Huguenots? They were hoping, the, the exiles, that uh, their return to France would be negotiated as part of the peace treaties taking place at Ryswick. Uh, but Louis XIV, who was still in a very strong position at the end of the conflict, remained firm. So for the French exiles, essentially it meant that uh, long-term assimilation in the refuge became necessary and more realistic than temporary settlement. It can also be argued that the 1713 Peace of Utrecht, which marked the end of the War of the Spanish Succession, um, also put a more emphatic end to the Huguenot hopes of repatriation, and thus, of course, further strengthened the assimilationist trend. Also, perhaps it helped Lord Galway in his successful attempt at reuniting the French churches of St. Patrick and St. Mary's in, in 1716, as was just said. 
it is safe to say that Galway endeavoured for the Huguenots to be assimilated rather than integrated. As former representative of the French Protestants at the court of Louis XIV, he had experienced how quickly the tide can turn against a minority group. Assimilation was further protection, and at this time, Galway was well aware that the political climate in England was treacherous as regards foreigners and minorities, as is attested by the 1699 Bill for forbidding non-natural English-born subjects to serve in the army. Goethe's services to the French Protestants of Dublin may be reflected in the dramatic influx of refugees to that city between 1701 and 1720. By 1701, there were four Huguenot churches, as we said, two conformist uh, and two non-conformist. And by 1720, which is the year uh, in which Galway died, the French Protestant presence was permeating into nearly every sector of town. Now, we won't discuss numbers because this is very tricky, but that gives you an idea of the importance of the community to have four churches. During his time as Lord's Justice, uh, Galway used this position to better the lot of veterans who had fought with King William, making sure that they would receive pensions for the services. Henri Dabzac, Seigneur de Mondial, was such a veteran who married Magdalene Dortu in Dublin in 1711. Six of their children were born in Dublin. Abel Amatis, who served in Galway's regiment of horse, also got married in Dublin to Marguerite Verlouvet de Belair in May 1700. Now, the fact that these were endogamic unions also confirmed that the process of assimilation really took off only with the second generation. Galway also used this connection to ensure that widows would be continued the pensions of their husbands and continued his role as patron well into his retirement. There is all the evidence that the process of assimilation into the host society did not occur overnight. In the post-Galway era, Huguenots in Dublin slowly but successfully continued to become part and parcel of Irish society. They were recognised in their trades and valued members of their host community. Among these Dublin dwellers were merchants who rose to prominence. Peter Seguin, who was the son of Paul Seguin of La Capede in the French province of Guyenne, which is essentially Aquitaine, uh, came to Dublin in 1725 and was granted arms by 1787, uh, which shows his uh, rise. The few accounts available regarding how Huguenot were perceived, while there's few and far between, are also quite interesting. The fact that it's the Irish Parliament granted money for the Huguenot regiments to remain on foot after 1697 uh, is, is quite interesting in that respect. It's the English Parliament who votes to disband them, so Irish society would have been more um, happy to keep them. Only one attack against Galway was specifically about him being a foreigner. It came from MP Philip Savage, who was a troublemaker in opposition anyway. So, um, on one occasion, Galway's attitude was ambiguous, and the responses are, are quite interesting there. The celebrated Elie Bouero of La Rochelle, who became the first public librarian in Ireland in 1701, thereby setting another success story of assimilation, had been Galway's personal secretary during the war. Between 1697 and 1699, Galway was involved in removing Matthew Pryor, the first secretary to the Lord Justices, to promote the second secretary, Humphrey May, thereby leaving room to appoint Bouero as second secretary. So, so that's the context for this. Matthew Pryor's patron and friend, Edward Villiers, who was the Earl of Jersey, nicknamed Galway Crop, as in a crop, you, you understood me well. And in a later dated June 1699, Pryor even wrote 
that to have Galway as one of the Lord Justices was, and I quote, setting up at Dublin as absolute a monarch as him to whom I paid my adorations yesterday, end of quote, who was no less than Louis XIV himself. Um, on this occasion, Jonathan Swift called Galway a knave, a hypocrite of no religion, but he, he did not call him a French dog. And if you know Swift, you know that it was what to be expected. Um, this attack does not represent Swift's attitude to the Huguenots as a community, because he was also the one who insisted that uh, a memorial plaque to the Duke of Schomburg, who died um, at De Boyne, be erected in St. Patrick's Cathedral. But to complicate matters more, in certain cases, it can be said that the Huguenots actively sought to retain their Frenchness, um, as it could bring them an economic advantage. In the case of the French schools, for example, um, in, in Port Arlington in Dublin, where it was very fashionable to learn French, um, is testimony to this. When to conclude, the issues of homeland return as opposed to integration or even assimilation into a permanent exile in, in the final analysis devolved around the crucial year of 1697 and the resolve of a single individual who is Louis XIV. The Earl of Galway, having observed that monarch's temper and disposition over a long time period than most, was thus probably in advance of most of his co-religionists uh, in realizing the unlikelihood of a return to France without conversion to Catholicism, and that assimilation was the optimum course. Um, hence, though not without strain, the gap between the leader's pragmatism and his people's dreams uh, narrowed and even closed through the passage of the years. Assimilation really occurred in the second generation, based on the evidence. The Huguenots were also dependent on the goodwill of the monarch at any given time. Charles II had been lukewarm and gave carte blanche to the Duke of Ormond. James II was also lukewarm to the Huguenots, but for different reasons. His personal aversion to oppression ensured that he did not prevent the, refu the refugees from coming to England and Ireland, but as you know, uh, Tyre Connell's regime was not very welcoming. Um, William III had been the most sympathetic to the Huguenots, passing favorable legislation, and most notably in 1692. Um, however, English politicians, both Tory and Whig, proved xenophobic and against William personally, and thwarted his efforts. Queen Anne's inclination to Anglicanism was amplified by her influential subordinates, and that was demonstrated by anti-nonconformist attitudes in Ireland as early as May 1702, so just months uh, after she came to power. Under the Georges, attitudes to nonconformists gradually became more relaxed as the Huguenot became less distinguishable and more and more Anglo-Irish. Thank you.